Hi, welcome to the Product Momentum Podcast, a podcast about how to use technology to solve challenging technology problems for your organization. All right, Sean, well, we've got a new amazing guest today, Jeff Gotthelf, and he really can go anywhere. I really enjoyed the conversation. He can speak about design process, agile, UX, product, you know, anything. He's got it all. Yeah, he's the author of three books, Lean UX, Sense and Respond, and Lean versus Agile versus Design Thinking, all very thought-provoking, good reads in our space. And if you haven't read them, I highly recommend you do. Also, we're going to learn that he's got a new side hustle, Sense and Respond Press, where he's publishing small business books in our space, which is kind of neat. That's the part where you're supposed to do the teaser. So if you want to learn about his side hustle, wait till the end. Oh, okay. Well, it's a little too late for that. Cat's out of the bag. All right. Well, that's... uh... We'll just have to deal with that. But anyways, here's the interview. It's great. Let's get after it. Okay, everyone. We are here today with Jeff Gotthelf, and we're really excited to talk to Jeff. He's got a lot of different topics that he talks about, and he's also going to be speaking at our conference coming up in the fall. So very, very excited. But Jeff, if we could just start off like we always do, could you please introduce yourself, talk about where you come from and what you do? Sure thing. Uh, So my name is Jeff Gotthelf. I am originally from New Jersey. Today, I live in Barcelona, Spain. And today, I work as a coach and a consultant and a keynote speaker with product teams to help them build great products. And I work with the executives who manage those teams to help them build the cultures that build great products. Very, very cool. So, you know, something we haven't really talked too much on this podcast yet about, even though we're 15 episodes in is it's just the practice of agile and what that means. You know, we focus a lot on UX, product management, but if you're in one of those jobs, you're probably working with an agile team nowadays. So, so, you know, we hear terms like modern agile a lot these days. Has agile evolved or what does this modern version of agile mean, if anything? I believe that agile needs to evolve in order to be successful today. So it's been around for about 20 years at this point, and it has taken the the business world by storm. There's no organization today that will publicly admit to not being agile. They might not be using it or using it well, but they'll never admit to it. When I hear conversations around modern agile, what that means to me is the kind of work that I promote, that I teach, and that I consult about, which is cross-functional, collaborative, customer-centric, and evidence-driven, which I believe was the original intent for agile. And all of those things actually end up driving the agility of an organization, which I think is ultimately the goal. Most organizations today, the ones that I work with, certainly the medium and the larger organizations, implement agile recipes. They're they're looking for 8, 10, 12 steps that they can take to become more efficient at delivering their product and their service. But what's missing from that is the value component. So just because you built it doesn't mean that it's valuable. And today, given the modern nature of technology and software, the fact that it's continuous, there's no beginning, there's no end to it, we can learn very, very, very quickly whether or not we're actually delivering value. And so if we can build cross-functional collaborative teams that focus on the customer, that collect evidence, and then decide whether or not the thing that we shipped made a positive impact on our customers, and then if it didn't, how to improve it, then we're implementing modern Agile. Got it. That makes a ton of sense, and I I totally agree. And, you know, as companies nowadays have started mostly to work with Agile. You know, everyone's got maybe one team or two teams or three teams. Talk to me a little bit about 
kind of some of the pains you see as companies scale agile per se? You know, we've got a client who they first grew to 30 teams and then they grew to 120 Agile teams now. What do you typically see on that journey? I remember back at Agile 2015, everyone was saying, as you scale, you have to do Scrum of Scrums, for example. You know, what mm-hmm. are some of the other pain points you see as they scale? So first and foremost, if we're trying to, to implement these collaborative cross-functional teams, one of the key things that we'd like to give those teams is autonomy. The autonomy to make the day-to-day decisions based on the information that they're collecting. Now, that's all well and good if there's one, two, three, four, five teams. But if, like you said, if you've got 30 teams, 120 teams, 500 teams, inevitably there are going to be significant dependencies. And so first of all, how do we build clear, transparent lines of communication across all of these different organizations so that they can understand what everybody's working on? How do we reduce duplication of effort? So if my team is working on a particular initiative and learning certain things that might be helpful to your team, how do we get that across to you? One other thing that's become really challenging is organizations have taken on this new, it's not a new concept, but but it's becoming very popular is this concept of objectives and key results. Basically, what we're talking about there is managing the outcomes. And if my team is trying to optimize a specific outcome, but that is negatively impacting the outcome that your team is trying to impact, how do I find out about that? How do I make sure that we then start to discuss that so that I'm not uh, ruining your work or vice versa. These are all just some of the challenges we see as we scale. So what would some of your advice be to both the product leadership and maybe the folks working the day-to-day you know, for their product leadership be to allow them to have more autonomy? Does it come down to like the visioning process of how you know, the larger vision gets communicated down? Or is it just like letting them take the reins? Like, How does that autonomy occur? What do you recommend? First and foremost, we have to change how we assign work and framework for our teams. So the first thing that we do is actually frame the work as a problem to solve rather than a solution to implement. That's the first thing that I recommend. That's a fundamental difference, right? So it's a difference between build me an iPhone app, which is a solution to implement, to I would like you to increase mobile commerce by 15% because it's not performing as well as it has in the past. That's a problem to solve rather than a solution to implement. So automatically, You've now empowered the team to go figure out how to solve this problem. The second thing you've done by doing that is you've given them a very clear measure of success that is an outcome. It's a a change in customer behavior. We want more people buying through the mobile channel. And most importantly, what we've done in that situation is we have not told the team what to build. We haven't told them what to make, right? If I tell you to build an iPhone app, you'll build an iPhone app. And whether or not it increases mobile commerce by 15%, we'll have to wait and see. But if I tell you to increase mobile commerce by 15%, you and the team now have to go discover the best combination of code, copy, and design that drives that customer behavior. And so right there, you've, you've empowered the team to experiment, to learn, to iterate, to be agile. And that's a great start. But there's a bit that's missing here is that the teams owe a communication stream back up to their leaders to let them know what they're working on, what they're learning, and how they're making decisions. And it's that proactive upward communication that allows these teams to stay autonomous. Because if I'm your boss and I don't know what you're working on, I'm going to start to revoke that autonomy bit by bit until I find out what's happening. And so the more that you tell me, the less I have to do that. Okay, so we've talked a lot about empowering the team and allowing the team to stay autonomous. I like that. 
One of the quotes I read in, I think it was Lean versus Agile versus Design Thinking in your book, is that the problem with Agile and scaled Agile, Agile frameworks is that they treat other disciplines as support staff or engineers. Um, and the Agile puts the business as the customer versus making sure the customer is the customer, the user is the customer. So I, I'd like to ask you to talk about that a little bit. So what do you mean when you say that Agile, traditional Agile, or some forms of Agile, or the scaled Agile framework treat other disciplines as the support staff for engineers? Agile was conceived by 17 software engineers. And so it's only natural that their frame of reference and the suggestions that they came up with, the manifesto that they came up with, was centered around software development. The majority of Agile implementations over the years have started in the IT department, which makes sense. It came from software people. It's safe to assume it's for software people. But the reality is that today we can't deliver successful digital products and services without product management, without design, without copywriting, right? without content strategy. We need those disciplines to build great customer experiences. And sadly, the majority of the frameworks, including Scrum, including Safe, uh, certainly if you look at, at extreme programming, right, they just simply don't account for these other disciplines. Now, for those of you out there who are practicing SAFE, um, you will, you'll say, well, Jeff, you know, SAFE 4.5 has Lean UX in it, right? It's literally, it says it's SAFE 4.5 now with Lean UX, which is great, right? Um, but I challenge you to find a team that can figure out how to integrate user experience, design, product management into that SAFE workflow in a continuous way. It always feels bolted on. It always feels either after the fact or before the fact. It's, it's extremely difficult to find space for these activities in the recipes as they've been prescribed to date. And I think that's primarily due to the origins of Agile and the kind of the methodologies that have spawned from the Agile Manifesto. Okay, Jeff, you keep referring to this term recipe, which I think you are equating somewhat to a process or to disciplined engineering process. I've learned from reading your stuff and experience in this field that there is really no perfect process. Every team's different. Things need to be adjusted. You know, but the one thing that I think is universal, tied tightly to what you just said, is this need for balanced teams, independent, autonomous, empowered, and balanced teams. So let's talk a little bit about what you mean when you use the word recipe and what you think about rigid process versus an alternative. So when, when I say recipe, I mean that Look, if you look at the successful methodologies today, Scrum, for example, uh, Safe, massively successful from just kind of a commercial standpoint, from an adoption standpoint, why are those so successful? They're successful because they provide organizations with a step-by-step -step process of how to implement Agile. That's their promise. And organizations who are not experts in Agile or software development, for that matter, look for these recipes because it's, it's easy, right? If, if we follow these 10 steps, then we will be Agile. And that's the belief. But the reality is that, to your point, there is no perfect process. And the context of your organization your domain, your regulations, your corporate politics, your customers, all of those things will inevitably force the morphing of these recipes into something unique to your organization. And that's part of the underlying theme of, of 
what I was writing about in Lean versus Agile versus Design Thinking is exactly that. There are components of Lean that make sense in some organizations, but not in others. There are components of Agile and Scrum that make sense in some situations, but not others. Design Thinking, the same thing. Pick and choose the activities that make the most sense for your organization and help you learn the fastest, help you get value out to your customers the fastest and make sense in your domain. For example, right? If, if you work in B2C commerce, you can get ideas into your customers' hands and feedback very, very quickly. But if you work in um, pharmaceuticals, for example, that cycle time is going to be longer simply because of the nature of the product and the service that you're delivering. And that's okay. So again, there is no perfect process. Pick and choose the components that make the best sense for your organization and your context. So, you know, in thinking about like how, you know, we were talking about modern agile and what's evolved and what's different nowadays and, and all that. Do you have any kind of foresight into maybe what the next major evolution of the software development process is going to be just based on all the different companies you talk to or what you're hearing in the fields? What do you think is next? That's a terrific question. Here's what I hope is next, <laughs> which I think is different. Um, here's what I hope is next. I hope that over time, we begin to drop the labels of agile and lean and design thinking and waterfall, and that we simply have the kinds of organizations and the kinds of cultures that encourage and reward learning and customer centricity. And I think that if we can do that, if we can build companies and organizations that incentivize their teams to deeply understand their customers, to ensure that we're always delivering value for them, and to feel safe changing course if they find out that we are not delivering value to them, then all of those organizations stand a much greater chance of success. And you can call that agile, you can call it design thinking or whatever you want. But to me, that's the goal. And my hope is that the labels just drop and that ends up just being the way that we work. Yeah, I like that a lot. I mean, it should, it should just be the way. Like there shouldn't be any convincing that you need to talk to customers, for example, anything like that. It should just be how it, it works nowadays. So my favorite things that you talk about is how everything is a product. And that is something that I personally connect with a lot. I think about a lot. And I think that you know, us as product managers, we're going to have a lot of opportunities to really look at the business as a whole and every experience that has a customer touch point or even internally, and think about how to improve that experience or that product, you know, because it, it's all an experience. It's all a product when you're thinking about how we interact with each other internally, the tools we use, the way we talk and communicate, you know, every which way a customer could ever work with our product or talk to us. Can you just maybe talk a little bit more about what you think about that? Because I, I love the way you framed it in some of your writing. One of the things that I try to get across, because I, I don't work with just software teams. I work with HR teams. I work with legal teams. I've worked with finance teams. I've worked with teams that build cell phone towers and teams that build locomotives and industrial lighting systems and air conditioning units. And you know, you walk into these situations, and what I've learned over the years is that when people approach the work that they do from the perspective of... I make a thing, I make a product, I make a service, and I have customers or users of that thing, they simply do better work because they start to think about, well, who are the users of my product and are they having a good experience? And if they're not, how can I make that better? I'll give you a great example, which is, it's, it's going to sound a bit obscure, but this is exactly the kind of application that I think is 
massively valuable as organizations try to scale agility throughout every discipline. So one of my clients is a global uh, telco, huge global telco. And I was teaching a workshop for that client. And one of the people in the workshops was a woman who writes cybersecurity policy for that company. Right? She doesn't make cell phones. She doesn't make cell phone plans. She doesn't make the website to buy the plan. Nothing with, to do with the retail. She makes cybersecurity policy. And I said to her, I said, who's your customer? And she looked at me like I just, you know, like as my mother used to say, like I had three eyes on my head. <laughs> <Huh>? Right? <laughs> right? And I said to her, you're looking at it. I said, I'm your customer. I'm a vendor for your company. And as part of my vendor onboarding process, I have to read and agree or not to your cybersecurity policy. And I have to tell you that the cybersecurity policy that you've written is completely inappropriate for a vendor of my size, given the kinds of services that I deliver. And it causes me headaches and delays in getting onboarded and getting paid. And I'm unhappy as a customer of your cybersecurity policy. And this was such an eye-opening moment because, you know, if, if you make an app, you work in, into technology and software, you talk about your users, you talk about your customers. But if you work in cybersecurity policy or you work in HR and you make a, uh, a learning and development plan, you don't really think about the user or the customer in the same way that we do when we're designing software or digital products. And I find that when we do that, the conversation starts to shift, right? Because again, we, we start to move away from outputs, right? I implemented the HR policy to, well, what was the impact? Like, what, in other words, what was the change in behavior that we saw after we implemented that HR policy? Did it work? Because that's what actually matters. And it's extremely eye-opening and it has two massive benefits. One is it increases the agility of the entire organization department by department. But the other is that it helps these non-product disciplines understand how to better support the product disciplines as well because they have a better sense of how they work. All right. So... You use the word agility a lot. It's one of your favorite words. <laughs> um, I think you define it based on what I've heard you say as how well an organization learns. Do you agree with that? And not, not just learns, but actually responds to what they're learning in, in a reasonable time frame. Sure. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Have you ever thought about how would you measure or how do you compare team A versus team B in terms of how well they learn? My thinking on this has changed over the years. Uh, my thinking is agile. <laughs> I've learned and I've, re I've sensed and responded over the years. I'll tell you how. So when I first started thinking about this exact question, I was hung up on the fact that if you compared two teams and you said, team A ran 50 experiments and team A ran five experiments, right? To me, those were vanity metrics. Team A talked to 100 customers, Team B talked to 10 customers. So what? Did they learn anything? Were they good conversations? Were they the right customers? Those are interesting questions. And I was pretty hardcore about that belief for a long time. And, and I still believe that ultimately they are vanity metrics. However, however, I also now believe where this has evolved is that teams that have never done this before teams that have never sensed and responded, teams that have not done these kind of learning activities, there is value in simply going through the motions. 
It teaches them how to learn. It teaches them what techniques work better in certain situations. It teaches them to synthesize the learning and it teaches them better ways of responding to what they're learning. And so today with teams that are just starting out down this path towards agility, measuring things like how many experiments you've run, how many customers you've talked to, how frequently you talk to customers, how much time you spend talking to customers, all of those things I think are fine. I think ultimately, as teams mature, what we want to see are things like the number of decisions that are made with evidence. I think that that's a really excellent metric. So there are decisions that are made because someone told us to do it. And there are decisions that are made because, hey, we felt like that was a good idea. And then there are decisions that we made because of the evidence that we've collected. And so to me, that's a nice evolution of that and a, and a good measure for a team that is increasing their learning uh, velocity and the quality of the learning that they're doing. Cool. And if I could pull on your initial response to the definition of agility there, actually doing something with the learning, right? Mm-hmm. So it might be useful to look at how are we measuring what we're doing with the learning? Like, what is the result that we're impacting based on what we learned? Yeah, absolutely. Like, we, we want to make sure that we're doing something. And believe it or not, this, this is also kind of an anti-pattern that I see a lot. So I've worked with organizations who say, look, we're doing everything that you said. You know, we're writing hypotheses and we're designing experiments and we're running those experiments. Okay. And then what happens? Well, nothing. We still just kind of go through the roadmap and build the things that we were told to build, right? And so there, there has to be that understanding that, there are two sides to this. And, and again, there's a, you know, to, to be a bit tongue in cheek because the book is called that. There's the sensing part and then there's the responding part. And they're both equally as important. You have to collect the data and then you have to act on the data. And if you're doing one without the other, it's a broken process and you're not getting value. So what do you, what do you think about, well, I know what you think about it. But it's a fun topic <laughs> we talk about with several guests now. Um, you know, NPS, Net Promoter Score. So if you could just give your little, um, you know, your take on it in terms of does it provide any value or is it just a totally wasted, you know, don't, don't even worry about it. Here's what to do instead kind of thing. Cause we have two guests who had both sides of the opinion there. Yeah. So I wrote a relatively popular article called NPS is a waste of time. <laughs> I'll guess which side then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that should give you a pretty clear indication of where I fall on this argument. However, look, I'm the biggest cheerleader for customer satisfaction. I want customers to be satisfied. I want them to love the things that we make for them. I want them to come back. I want them to tell their friends, right? And that's what I care about. I care about what satisfied customers do. Measuring NPS is asking a human to predict their future behavior, right? In the future, will you tell somebody about this experience that you just had? Yes. No. Six. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Like, who cares? I think a much better question is, did you tell anybody about this? That's a hundred times better question because that's a thing that actually happened. Yeah, I told my best friend. I told the internet. And in fact, you know that because three people signed up with my referral code. That is a far better indication of satisfaction than me asking somebody to rate their likelihood of recommending the thing in the future. So I absolutely care about customer satisfaction. I think it's crucial. However, I think the best measures of customer satisfactions are behaviors in the system. What are people doing in the system to tell us that they like it? 
Yeah. Yeah. To Joe's point, surveys in general are destructive in terms of how they build relationships. I mean, they're interruptive, right? So even a small thing, like one little question, like, would you be willing to recommend your friend or family member? It's still degrading in terms of the experience that you produce. There's no way around that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Face, don't listen to what people say. Watch what they do. You know, watch their actions. Exactly. That, that's exactly right. We're big on the advocacy measure of are people using a feature to actually share it with their friend or refer someone in or, you know, measuring any way of doing that is, is really the value. We, we say that's kind of like the ultimate the goal of any product. It's not really to make money. It's to get people to be advocates and tell their friends, tell their family, recommend it. That's really yeah. a, an ultimate measure of behavior. Investing in the future of the product, right? Yeah. Look, if you truly care about this particular question, then do what Netflix does. Netflix asks you, did someone recommend Netflix to you when you sign up? Right. Yeah. Yes. No. That's a far better indication of the answer to this one question than will you do that in the future? Got it. All right. So customers vote with their feet and you know, you've built a great product when they behave in certain ways, like they become advocates or they exhibit loyalty or they exhibit trust or things of that nature. Right. And this is another quote from your book. They don't really care whether you're agile, lean, or using design thinking. Your customers don't give a hoot about any of that stuff. What they care about is that you build a great product. Mm-hmm. So we need to figure out how to measure what constitutes a great product. Yep. So along these lines, what, what have you seen has been a great measure of a great product? Look, again, context is everything, right? So Facebook gifted us the metrics of Mao and Dow, monthly average users and daily average users. And uh, many, many organizations have adopted those metrics, even though they make absolutely no sense, right? So uh, my friend Jeff Patton always makes the joke. He says, what if you're in the uh, fire extinguisher business, right? Like, are you looking for daily average users of the fire extinguisher? I know, it's it's, it's it's crazy. Right. It doesn't make sense. And so my father actually owned a fire extinguisher business. Well, look, so what's the measure of of success of that product, right? You want people to own them, right? That's one thing. And ideally you want them to work when necessary, but if people are using them on a daily basis, there's a real issue there, (laughs) right? (laughs) So the thing that we learned was that we could charge an annual subscription to have that fire extinguisher measured. Mm. But along the way, you know, there are other, there's inspection touch points and we figured out like, what is the right cadence for that specific business? It's finding the right metric for the business. Right. Every, every business has its yeah, yeah. metrics that make sense. Like a dating site, <laughs> you know, if they're doing their job, there shouldn't be many returning users after time. Exactly. I used to work at a job board called The Ladders for four years and it was a subscription service and we wanted people to renew their subscription, but not for 18 months, <laughs> yeah. you know, like at yeah, three, four, five, six months, it's like, okay, something's wrong here. Right. And so a couple of folks talk about the one metric that matters. Josh Elman talks about it in his mind, the product talk, the guys who wrote lean analytics, Alistair Kroll and Ben Yoskovitz, they talk about the one metric that matters. And, and, and really it's the thing that you want people doing in your product right now, whether that's subscribing or following or time on site or referring or purchasing purchasing, it's going to differ based on what it is that you offer and how that value is consumed by your customers. So I got a question here about what's the biggest resistance you get from maybe like really senior leadership, you know, C-suite, you know, CEO, CMO, CTO, CPO, like what's their biggest resistance in maybe investing more in talking to customers or just, you know, this, this whole product experience and all this process we're talking about, what's the number one pushback you guys get? Super easy. We know best. 
right? We know best. We know best. We're big. We're successful. We know what customers want. I've been in this business for 25 years. I can tell you exactly what each customer wants. I don't need to talk to them. I know exactly, like I know best. That's that's 100% it every time. So they are the supreme product owner. They are. Of all the land. The Steve Jobs quote about, you know, my customers know what they want when I show it to them. Is it along those lines? Yes, but uh, oh, I love this. I love it because I, I wrote about this in Sense and Respond and, and you know, the Steve Jobs thing, God, he screwed us with that quote. Oh, he did, right? <laughs> you know, God, <laughs> he gave us such good, it's good stuff to work with and he hosed us with that quote that customers don't know what they want right until they yeah. see it, right? And it's bullshit. They know exactly what they need to get done, right? Now, the challenge is, you know, how big of a gamble or an innovation effort do you want to put forward to solve the problem for them, right? Steve Jobs was a master of that. He was a master right. of understanding the problem he was solving, and he had the, the capacity and the desire to roll the fate of his entire company over these big, innovative uh, approaches to solving these problems. I challenge you to find a CEO who's willing to do that. Every time I hear a company or a CEO say, we want to be the Apple of real estate, we want to be, <laughs> right? or whatever. Well, you know, Steve Jobs is willing to bankrupt the company over the iPod. Are you? Mm-hmm. Right? And, and the answer is no, 100% of the time, right? unless you're Elon Musk. Yeah. And that's another good example of a guy who's just willing to say, look, I'm going to do it my way. It's going to be big. It's going to be bold. Right. So, so again, come kind of back to the meat of this thing. And <laughs> you triggered me with that Steve Jobs. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but the point is, is customers know exactly what they want to do, right? I need to apply for a mortgage and I need to do it in as quick and painless way as possible. Right now, do I know what a mortgage application looks like? Yes. Do I know what an awesome mortgage application process looks like? I have no idea. Show me one and I'll be blown away. Right? That's your job. That's our job. Yeah, I, I like Jeff Bezos, what he talks about a lot with you know, finding problems that will always forever need to be solved. And you know, what he says, for example, is a customer will never say, I want something slower. Right. So they are always trying to find a way to make Prime faster. And now they're going to be moving it to one-day shipping from two. Yeah. So that's just an example of you know, there's always perpetual problems to solve, you know, no matter how you end up doing it. Yeah, no, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. In fact, I just, my kids, I have two teenage daughters and um, we were at breakfast recently and, and I was feeling philosophical and uh, I was trying to <laughs> convey some, uh, some paternal knowledge onto them. And I talked about that exact thing. I said, Jeff Bezos, richest man in the world. They, they know Amazon, obviously Amazon's here daily at our house. And I said, you know what he focuses on? Not everyone always asks him what he thinks will change in the future. And he says, what I focus on are exactly what you said, the things that won't change. And th those kind of basic human needs that are never going to go away. And if you can serve those needs, you will always be successful. Yep, I totally agree. I love it. I got one last question for you. We're on this, uh, what are our customers want bent here? One of the quotes I loved from your book was about user research. You said, we need to do user research for sure, but we should do less user research and we should do it less often. So talk about that a little bit. Uh, less research more often. Oh, I'm sorry. I did that wrong, didn't I? Yes, you're right. Yes. Less user research, but more often. So smaller increments more often, almost like agile. Imagine that. Imagine that. Um, so look, I spent a generous part of the first 10 years of my career sitting behind the one-way mirror, eating a bunch of candy for two days, listening to people talk about literally the same thing for two days. 
you know, by 14, 15 people coming through and by the sixth or the seventh person, you know exactly what's going to be said. You don't even know why you're coming back the next day, but we paid for it. So uh, we got to go through with it. That's always been the number one pushback to research. It's expensive. It takes too long. What are people going to be doing while you're doing your research? There is no reason why we can't build continuous research into the way that we work. We've got continuous delivery. We've got continuous design, continuous improvement. Research needs to be a part of that. And the only way that that's going to happen, the only way that research will fit into sprints is to do less of it more often. So for example, in Lean UX, we've talked about this for years now, but every Thursday when I was working at the ladders, every Thursday was customer conversation day. We recruited on Monday. We got three people to come in every Thursday. We spent Thursday morning talking to three customers. We dissect and, and synthesize and the information over lunch, make some decisions and move on and start the process again on Monday. So it wasn't a 14 person study. It was a three person study that we were doing on a weekly basis. And so it was less research more often and it fits and it builds that continuous feedback loop that agility requires. And the other thing you said, and I think it was in the same paragraph that I absolutely love, and I think it will help all businesses thrive if they can figure out how to do this, is to be more transparent with all of your findings, like to share them more broadly and to share them immediately. Don't sit on them. Don't mull over them. Don't spend too much time analyzing them before you get them out there. Like, do your best to get them out there as quickly and as broadly as possible. This is the key, I think. This is the key to making this stuff work is creating the safety for our teams to reveal everything that they've learned. It's super easy to reveal the wins. We thought it should be red and it was good as red. So we were right, right? Um, but if we were wrong, we need to be transparent about that as quickly as possible because we're going to change course. We thought it should be red. Red didn't work. So we're going to try blue. Okay, great. Why are we doing blue? Well, here's why, right? Here are the findings from our research. And so this is the key. The key is to create the psychological safety for teams to report back their findings, whether they're good findings or bad findings. And if they're working in short cycles, the impact of a negative finding, the impact of being wrong is significantly reduced, right? So if you work in two-week cycles, if you work in two-week sprints, then the maximum amount of investment that you make in anything is two weeks. And if you're wrong, worst case scenario, absolute worst case scenario, you lost two weeks. Okay, so what? That's certainly less painful than working on something for six months or nine months and then finding out that you were wrong. To me, that's the absolute key is how do we encourage that? How do we build the sharing of knowledge and learning at every opportunity? How do we increase that transparency of the organization? It's the key to making this stuff work. Yeah. I don't know if anyone's got a chance to uh, read it yet, but Basecamp came out with a little book online called Shape Up and they talk about their process and they basically do these six-week cycles and they say, well, if it doesn't work out, it was only six weeks. You know, They're managing the risk in that sense, but they're trying stuff constantly. Yep. So cool. Well, this has been a phenomenal episode, Jeff. So thank you so much. You know, we always close out with asking a couple more questions of, you know, besides your own, what's your favorite book or some that you give out as gifts or just recommend? So the one that I'm giving out these days and, and recommending a lot is Barry O'Reilly's new book called Unlearn. If you take everything that we talked about today and you elevate it to a process or a methodology that can apply to really any skill that you're trying to improve or, or really anything that you're trying to improve. He opens up with this amazing story about Serena Williams, you know, kind of reinventing her tennis playing style. It really kind of takes this, this approach that we've been talking about at the tactical product level and elevates it to anything that you're trying to improve. So unlearned by Barry O'Reilly. 
Awesome. Thank you. And then in closing, anything else you want to plug or talk about? So I would love to let everybody know about my side hustle. Josh Seiden, my co-author and business partner and friend. He's my friend as well. Uh, for me, I always forget to say that. Like, <laughs> Arch enemy and business partner. <laughs> well, I mean, some people are like that, but no, we're, we're, we're actually friends and we've written a couple of books together and we've actually started a business, a side hustle together called Sense and Respond Press. Sense and Respond Press is a business book publishing press and we publish short, practical business books for busy executives. The books are never more than 50 pages long, about 10 to 12,000 words. They focus on business uh, agility, uh, digital transformation, product management, and design. And we've got about 10 books out there right now. You can see them all at senseandrespondpress.com. About seven more in the works. And the best part about this is that we're always looking for new authors. We're looking to help people unlock their first book as well as to provide a platform for underrepresented minorities to help get them published as quickly as possible. So check out senseandrespondpress.com and um, see if there's anything that you like. That is awesome. I'm going to check that out. Well, Jeff, very cool side hustle, again. my friend. Very yeah. cool side hustle. <laughs> my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me and, and giving me an opportunity to chat with you. You got it. Take care. All right, so that's it for today. Thanks for listening. And we're not going to just talk to talk. We're going to walk the walk. So we would love if you go into your podcast products and leave us a review. Sean and I guarantee and are committed to reading absolutely every piece of feedback we get there. And not only that, but you're helping other listeners by getting that feedback in there. It helps us move up the search rankings so that other people can find the episodes. So thank you, everyone. 